She can look after herself by Ken Towel. The first time I felt concerned about my mother, um, oh, I can't remember the exact date, but it was around the time the coronavirus pandemic started and they went into isolation. I got a text from my mother which alarmed me. Um, keep it to yourself, she said, but I think Dad is trying to kill me. Of course, I phoned her straight away and and she answered, whispering, I'm in the shed. It's okay to speak here, but next time don't call again. Wait till I call you. I didn't know what to say. The truth is we, we don't normally speak much on the phone. Haven't ever since they got the computer and discovered social media. We would message each other and to keep them happy, I'd like all their posts. The pictures of the garden, the hilarious gifts of animals falling over and the memes with dodgy politics. You don't believe me, do you? said my mother, correctly interpreting my silence. He's got rat poison in the shed. Why would he have that? To kill rats with? He's not going to poison you, is he? I mean, how could he? You do all the cooking. I seem to have shifted from incredulity about the possibility of my father murdering my mother to doubt about the method he would employ. He made me a cup of tea this morning. Now, why would he do that? Why, indeed? I could hear the triumph in her voice. Argument one. Opposition quashed. I had no idea how to resolve a problem that didn't exist outside of my mother's mind. I had no idea how to cope with the suspicion that my mother was going senile. Shall I call the police? Don't be stupid, she said. And it was as if I was 15 years old again. I can do that if I need to. I just wanted to let you know I can look after myself. <sighs> that evening, I got an email that said, Your mother is driving me mad. This isolation is too much for both of us. I can't stand it. My father is not a particularly expressive man, so his promiscuous use of no fewer than three exclamation marks hit me hard. Dad... I typed rapidly, don't do anything foolish, I'll come over. Actually, in my haste, I typed, don't do anything foolish. The reply pinged back with the same clumsy haste and with an inadvertent autocorrect. Don't be stupid, we're in solution. What do you want to do, kill us? He didn't spell you, you. Clearly, he was agitated. I reassured him that their safety was my first concern and I would do nothing to compromise it. I reflected on their relationship and realised that I had no idea what it was like. I hadn't lived with them for nearly 30 years. Social media messaging didn't encourage talk about feelings and anyway they had discovered and embraced the limitations of the emoticon. But they seemed to get on, okay? I mean, sure, they put each other down a little too much, like most couples their age seem to do. But I always assumed they'd reached some sort of accommodation. After all, they still shared the same house, the same bed. Sorry, officer. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Um, The messages. So, I heard nothing from them for about a week. It started to prey on my mind, so I sent a text to Mum and asked her to give me a call when she could, and ten minutes later she called. I'm in the shed, she said. Aren't you cold? I asked. Just keep it normal, I thought. 
she said. He's got a heater in here. It's quite cosy. How's Dad? Oh, as well as can be expected. He's in the kitchen. He doesn't talk to me now. That must be hard, I said. It's a relief. We've said everything that needed to be said. He doesn't talk. He doesn't get upset. Yes, of course I'm OK. Don't you worry. So that was that. I sent him an email, asked him to phone me, but the reply came straight back. Your mother's hidden the phone. She's gone balmy. Anyway, she can keep it. She left me a list of groceries to order and I've got a slot. Mustache. It was reassuring, at least, that he was back to the single exclamation mark. Perhaps things had settled down, I thought. My mother sent a message the following week, pretty much confirming what I thought. They were perhaps getting on each other's nerves, but that was about it. The last time I actually spoke to her. Well, apart from the occasional photo of the roses or the magpies in the garden, there was nothing for a while. And then maybe a month or so later, early May, she called me, asked me how I was doing, which, well, it took me back a bit. I realised then that she didn't usually ask after me at all. She asked how I was eating and I said, you know, OK, all things considered. And she said she'd found a new hobby. She was following online recipes, had set herself the task of making a dish from every country in the world. How's Dad liking that? I asked. He's not complaining, she said. He's not speaking to me at all. Quite frankly, if he left me completely on my own, I wouldn't mind at all. In fact, I'd love it. I asked her if she needed anything. I thought I might be able to help. Maybe bring something round, put it on the doorstep, hear their voices. She told me not to bother. They could get whatever they needed online, and anyway, Dad's spring cabbages and radishes were coming through in the back garden. Almost immediately, I got another email from my father. He said that as soon as his isolation was up, he was leaving that the combination of the lockdown and the revelation that there was another, albeit virtual, world out there had convinced him. Oh, yes, sorry, um, my mother, yes. So that was the last time I heard a voice. A month ago, I suppose, yes. She's all right, isn't she? I mean, I couldn't imagine my father would... Text messages... Oh, yes, the one she said yesterday, uh, it said, um, your father's left, he's just got up and walked out, didn't even say goodbye, I'm going to take his clothes to the Oxfam as soon as they open again. I phoned her, but there was no answer, so I emailed my dad, asked him what he was up to. The reply was a bit of a shock. It was longer than any message he'd ever sent before, not really his style at all. Look, look, here it is. Uh... Hi, love. Well, I've finally gone and done it. To be honest, it's a relief more than anything else. I'm going away and I have never felt happier in my life. I know we've never been close. In fact, I never was much use to you or your mother. She brought you up, you know, without much help from me. So remember that when this is all over. Don't worry about me. I'm in a happy place. Love, Dad. Well... That did worry me. It wasn't like him at all. I drove straight round, knocked on the door, yelled through the letterbox, but there was nothing. I didn't know what to do. So that's when I called you. Anyway, I've told you everything I know. Where's my mother? 
Why can't I see her now? Witness statement interview, Detective Sergeant Holroyd, 10.45pm. Uh, the witness became quite agitated at this point, repeatedly asking to see her mother. So Detective Constable Hicks and I were obliged to terminate the interview. The witness per se has shed little light on the events surrounding the killing, beyond confirming that the suspect has carried out what appears to be a carefully planned, premeditated murder. On the other hand, we believe conversations recording on the witness's mobile phone will be useful in establishing the perpetrator's guilt. Not quite tantamount to a confession and a little oblique in nature. Uh, not enough to hold up in court by itself, but then doesn't have to now. Uh, acting on a report from the suspect's daughter, we sent a car round to the house yesterday, uh, yesterday evening. No one answered the door, so a forced entry was effected under PACE on the basis of a serious threat to life. Nothing on the premises was immediately suspicious, except that the officers noted that the kitchen was spotless and smelt faintly of cleaning fluid. The search continued on the upper floor of the residence, where the suspect, being found in an initially uncommunicative state, was arrested and brought to the station for questioning. What emerged from the questioning was a story of continued psychological abuse going back years and a victim who had suddenly snapped. The lockdown had made things worse, had meant there was no outlet for either of them. The house had become an incubator of long, pent-up feelings until finally... Dot, dot, dot. All lies, of course. Smoke and mirrors. In fact, what had happened was a coldly planned execution. The killer had identified the crisis as the opportunity required, and it must be conceded, almost got away with it, almost fooled us. The body, of course, was key. If we could find it, then forensics could do their job and tell us what had happened. Cause of death, time of death, the lot. After that, uh, a caution, a bit of interview technique, and it would all be over. One more killer off the streets. We did not have a body, though. So we needed to find a hole in the story, something that didn't quite make sense. And then we needed to tear away at it until it did. In the end, it was something as mundane as the online shopping. Their daughter had been led to believe that the mother was choosing the food and her husband was placing an online order. Of course he wasn't. Over a space of three months, no food came into the house apart from what they got out of the garden, mostly just spring onions and purple sprouting broccoli and asparagus. The cupboards were full all right, but full almost entirely of an inordinately wide range of herbs and spices and 67 rolls of toilet paper. It was Hinks who went in for the kill. It was a simple question. What did you eat? A shifting look in the eyes, a tightening of the throat, and then uh, more smoke and mirrors. Oh, you name it, we had it. Beef rendang, biogos, pot of foy, 
Albondigues, Besticker, Ella Fiorentina. All right, said Hicks, that's enough. Just tell us why, just tell us how. We know you didn't receive any food deliveries. In front of him, forced to face the awful truth, obliged to confront the horrible, bloody reality, the old woman's eyes watered and she said, I had all those spices and he refused to let me cook with them. He was such a pig, I couldn't face mumps cooped up with that. I called my daughter, confirmed that whatever I said, even if I thought my life was in danger, she wouldn't come round. Then I smashed his head in. I kept him in the freezer and used his account to send messages on the computer and should have used it to buy meat, shouldn't I? But it seemed such a waste. I used quite a lot of him. The bin men took the rest. A Space to Inhabit by Lindsay Kroll I can't remember when the cloud appeared. It's like it's always been here on the edge of Elm Woods. A silent force watching over our village. I tried to trace its origin back to a moment in time, but it was only a blur. When I think about the woods, my childhood memories are clear. Brownie expeditions, playing hopscotch made from sticks, making daisy chains, and summer afternoons playing hide-and-seek with Rudy. But while I can't specifically remember the cloud being there at those times, neither can I recall it not being there. Once upon a time, the cloud existed. I'm walking to school when I hear the rumble of engines. I run towards the noise and find a procession of vehicles, each marked with government logos. It feels like an invading army as it trails past our village shop and play park and stops on the high street. Most of the community have gathered in small groups to watch, children hiding behind parents, adults doing their best not to look nervous. Slowly, the government people get out of the vehicles. Some of them are armed. Everything moves so fast as they gather us in the community centre. I find mum and dad and they try to reassure me with weak smiles. The invaders say they're here under national emergency protocol and that we shouldn't worry. But then they say something that doesn't make sense. That the cloud had only just appeared. They ask why no one reported its appearance, but everyone, like me, thinks the cloud has always been here. Loch Elm is cordoned off the same night. More soldiers arrive and checkpoints are set up. They tell us to continue as normal, but that we're under quarantine for our own safety. Something tells me it's not our safety they're worried about. At school the next day, a woman with a black dotted suit interrupts class. 
my name is called first, alphabetically. I look to Miss Lynn for reassurance, but she just nods me to go. The woman takes me to an empty classroom where chairs and a desk are set up. Two soldiers stand at the door as she motions me to sit. She clears her throat. <clears throat> What's your first memory of the cloud? Not even a hello. I search my mind for an answer, but it sends me in circles. I don't know. When was the last time you were in Elmwoods? My skin starts to prickle, as if I know somehow I shouldn't trust her. I walk by the woods every day. Was the cloud there yesterday morning? This confuses me. I suppose, yes. What about the day before? Was it? I don't know. It doesn't appear to be the answer she was looking for. Is she capable of smiling? Do you remember it being there? I shrug. I don't remember it not being there. Her eyebrows arch into a point. Then she dismisses me. I'm brought back to class and they call the next name. I've missed Miss Lynn's explanation of the afternoon's task, so I just stare at the whiteboard. My mind feels hazy. I almost feel like crying. I'm not sure what the woman expected to find out. It's become a strange sort of lockdown. Not like in the movies. There's been no descent into violence and we're not becoming flesh-eating zombies. They tell us we can't leave, but I don't think anyone wants to anyway. Will they still be here when I'm supposed to leave for university at the end of the month? Though, now that I think about it, I'm not sure I want to go anymore. I want to stay in Loch Elm. The government people eventually moved their investigations to the cloud itself. Things feel like we're almost back to normal again and we're getting used to lockdown. It's strange why none of us feels a temptation to go near the cloud. Normally, when someone puts a big barrier around something and tells you not to go near it, you want to do the opposite. Like a big red button that says do not press. The conflicting urge is always there, no matter how innocuous. You imagine yourself leaning forward and pushing it, revening in the rebellious feeling. Would you be in trouble? Would the world end? But with the cloud, nobody disobeys our orders to stay away. We merely observe it from a distance, from the edge. The real testing begins with a couple of soldiers suited and booted in strange-looking uniforms. As I'm walking home from school, I watch them marching towards the cloud until they're engulfed within its wisps. Screams ring out like panicked birdsong. I run home and pretend I heard nothing. Later, we find out that the soldiers who returned were taken away immediately for medical treatment. Soon, they've run out of soldiers to test and 
I wonder if they'll leave now. If they'll leave us and the cloud to inhabit the space together. I'd like that. The government doesn't leave. They call for volunteers from Loch Elm. They think we might be immune to its effects, but no one volunteers to test out the theory. So they'd start taking people from their homes. This is more like the movies. When the soldiers come to our house, we hide in the shed. They find us. It turns violent. My parents try to resist, but they're handcuffed and blindfolded. I call for them as I'm bundled into a military vehicle, but my cries are lost to the violent whir of engines. They bring me to the temporary compound near the edge. My head hurts. I feel as if I'm somehow disconnected from myself, like I'm half asleep, walking towards something inevitable that I can't control. People in lab coats shine light into my eyes and take blood samples. The needle hurts and blood trickles down from the pinprick to my forearm. A woman mumbles something about me being in my prime and how I have nothing to worry about. No one gives me a plaster. I cry when they drag me to the edge. The cloud looms, performing its hypnotic dance. I didn't realise I could make a noise so loud until I'm a foot away from the swirling gas of mystery. I know I'm supposed to stay away from here, but the soldiers keep pushing me forwards. The pain is all-encompassing. My body feels like it's being ripped apart muscle by muscle, like the cloud and I are negative ends of a magnet. Why are they doing this to me? They've given me no protection. I'm simply presented to the scene like a cow to slaughter. The curls of mist engulf me and a scream sticks in my throat. Everything is dark and light at the same time. If black is the absence of light, then I'm seeing the opposite. Words fill my head. Anna, welcome. It's going to be okay. Relax. It'll be over soon. Over soon. Relax. What do you see? I'm floating out to sea on a steady wave. It pushes me forward with a rhythmic swell and fall. Swell and fall. Then I can see. The chill of wind bites into my cheeks. Leaves crunch underfoot and Rudy's laughter echoes in the air. Rudy? It can't be. Can't catch me, I yell, but I have no control over the words. Wait, Rudy says from somewhere behind. I trip on a loose branch. I knew it was there. I've fallen over it before. My knee connects with sharp rock. I grunt as I feel the sting of a new wound or an old one remade. I lean down and touch my knobbly knee, expecting to see the familiar scar. But it's an open wound. It will need stitches. Mum will take me to the doctor while Dad searches the woods for Ruri. Ruri approaches me. 
He turns pale at the sight of the blood. Anna, are, are you okay? No, I wince. Don't say the words. Don't say them. But I can't stop the sentence that comes next. Rue, I can't stand up. Go home and get mum. A coldness washes over me. His lip trembles. But I'm not supposed to be in the woods on my own. This is how I will remember his face. Don't worry. It's okay. Just be brave. You remember how to get home. Follow our path through the trees. I'll be brave. I promise, Rue says, and his face flashes away into pitch darkness. I call his name into the emptiness. He'll never come back. Hands grip my ankles and I'm being dragged along spiky grass. There's a metallic taste in my mouth and a smell of rotten eggs in the air. Voices swirl above me, but I can't make sense of the words. I open my eyes and let my breath escape. The face of the black-suited government woman breaks my vision of the cloudless sky. She shakes my shoulders. Can you speak? I'm crying. What did you see? Tell me. I shake my head. My body quivers. I can't. You saw what was in there. You remember? Her nose is almost touching mine. I... Yes, I remember! I scream, hoping it will make her stop. Anything to make her leave me alone. It works. Her face twists into an expression I guess is triumph. She lets me go and turns to the soldiers at her side. Send the others, she orders, and strides away, leaving me lying on the floor, sobbing for my lost brother. My vision blurs. I'll wretch and throw up. I'm brought to a medical tent for observation. I try my best to stay awake, not wanting to give in to the darkness, but my eyes drift and I'm subjected to the whole experience again and again. Each time Rudy calls out for me and each time I can't change my reply. His face disappears into a void, pale and forever innocent. Nuri's disappearance isn't the only memory that haunts my dreams. There are ones I didn't know I had. Others I want to forget. Each one as vivid as the last. Some, at least, are comforting to relive, and in these moments I feel peaceful. But I have no control. My mind is simply replaying them at its own discretion. Chaotic information stored with no order... No filing process, no delete or save option. No control over the imprint the cloud has left on my brain. Day and night, they study me. I eventually give in and tell them what I'm seeing. They're as perplexed as I am. A couple of months pass... And they send me home. What use is a girl who can only recall her own memories? I don't dream at all anymore. I just remember. 
They have others with more applicable talents, though. My classmates who followed me into the cloud shortly after my own forced trip each came out with new abilities. Claire can now feel anyone's emotions by looking into their eyes, downloading their intentions. Ewan can hear every conversation that anyone has about him in his mind. Fraser was apparently the most valuable. He could siphon memories away from people. I wish he could take away the painful memories that I'm forced to endure every time I sleep. But they took him away last week and I don't think I'll ever see him again. I'm back in Loch Elm now. The government people are gone and so too is the cloud. When I think of it, I can't even remember it being there. I wonder if and where it will appear next. If the government is actively seeking out. If they'll be prepared for it next time. Mammy and the Naked Dwarf by David McGrath. Elaine was maybe a little drunk. Someone was in her bed. Mammy! I think someone's in my bed! What? There's someone in my bed! Mammy came out of the kitchen and looked upstairs at Elaine. No, there's not! There is! There couldn't be! Well, there is, Mammy! Mammy came upstairs and stood by Elaine at her bedroom door and saw that there was someone in Elaine's bed. John! Mammy shouted. John, get out here now! What? John shouted from bed. The women didn't answer him. What is it? Get out here, John! John poked only his bed, uh, only his head out of Mammy's bedroom door. What time is it? He asked. There's someone in Elaine's bed. No, there's not. There is. There couldn't be. Well, there is, John. Elaine would have to see John in his underpants. That's all there was to it. He joined the women at the bedroom door and the three of them stood staring at the someone in Elaine's bed. Did you bring someone back, Elaine? I beg your pardon. She certainly did not, Mammy said. So what? So someone's sleeping in my bed, John? Start again. Oh, for God's sake. Calm down, Elaine. John, Elaine came home. I made her a cup of tea. We chatted in the kitchen. I asked her who was out. It doesn't matter who was out, Mammy. Elaine said she was going to bed. I stayed downstairs to wash up. Elaine called down to me that there was someone in her bed. I came upstairs, there was someone in her bed. What time is it? It's three o'clock in the morning, John. So honestly now, come on, honestly. There's someone, that person in that bed has nothing to do with Elaine. No, Mammy said. That's what we're trying to tell you. The women waited while John went into Mammy's bedroom and struggled with his trousers. Fuck this for a game of soldiers, Elaine said. She held a heel in her hand, high, ready to strike. 
She went to her bed on her tippy toes, pinched a corner of her blanket, made sure and get it gripped good and tight, and then pulled it with all her might. She revealed a naked man, a naked dwarf. Jesus fucking Christ, Elaine said. Mother of God, Mammy said. What? John shouted from the floor of Mammy's bedroom. What is it? It's a little person, Mammy shouted. What? A little person, John. A child? No. They're called dwarves, Mammy. Ah, stop that, Elaine. That's what they're called. Dwarves. Yeah. John came into Elaine's bedroom, trousered up, chest punched out, ready for action. He stood beside the women. There was a dwarf in Elaine's bed, and he was naked. Where's his clothes? John asked. Ah, how are we supposed to know? Elaine said. The naked dwarf had a big mullet on him, like a lion's mane. His buttocks were bountiful. He had a rash. I know him, Elaine said. Elaine, Mammy said. I knew it, John said. I knew it. For God's sake, John, would you stop? I don't know him, know him. I saw him tonight in Matt the Miller's. He was handcuffed to a lad. Handcuffed? To a lad? Yeah, to a stag. Why was he handcuffed to a stag, Elaine? Mammy asked. It's what the stag parties are doing now, Mammy. They hired dwarves and handcuffed them to the stag. What's the point in that? John asked. Good crack, Elaine said. Good crack, my arse. Lads handcuffing dwarves to themselves. Why do they handcuff dwarves to themselves, Elaine? For God's sake, I don't know, Elaine said. It's funny seeing the stag having to go to the toilet with the dwarf handcuffed to him. The dwarf shakes him when he's going for a piss, apparently. It gets everywhere. I don't think that's very funny, Mammy said. I don't think that's very funny at all, John said. The naked dwarf turned over in bed and the three of them got a full frontal view. Balls and arsehole and the whole shebang. Holy Mary, mother of God, Mammy said. There are less graphic views in the windows of Kennedy's butchers. <laughs> it's nothing you haven't seen before, Mammy, Elaine said, sniggering. Ah, put the blanket over him, Mammy said. Elaine threw the blanket to John, who said, fine, he'd put the blanket over him. It's not like he was afraid. John flapped the blanket into the air and let it fall faintly on the naked dwarf. Ah, he'll smother like that, John, Mammy said. John pulled the blanket down off the naked dwarf's face and to his neckline. Now, John said, he won't smother like that. Uh, where the fuck do I sleep? Elaine asked. Elaine, Mammy said, with that language. No, seriously, Elaine said. Is he actually sleeping here? We're not calling the cops or anything. Isn't he drunk, Elaine? Were they giving him drinks? They were. Yeah, they were. Ah, the poor little devil. So I just sleep on the floor, do I? Come on, Mammy said. I'll get the bed in Jenny's room made up for you. Elaine and Mammy left John alone with the naked dwarf. 
and John, somehow wanting to manage the situation, shook him a little bit. Oi, John said, Lucky McSpud, are you awake? The naked dwarf came to just below the surface of comatose, opened an eye and quickly got the gist of John. Fuck off. The little bollocks. What? Mammy called out from the spare room. Ah, he's after telling me to fuck off in here. Leave him alone. Come out of there now. Let him sleep. In the morning, the dwarf came downstairs, no longer naked. He was dressed in John's clothes, an old Chelsea jersey, a tracksuit bottoms and black shoes, all of it folded in and tucked up. Elaine was alone and sitting at the kitchen table, drinking tea, eating toast. I don't remember anything, the dwarf said. Which way is out? You can have a cup of tea if you want. You have anything stronger, the dwarf said, trying to sound like he was Keith Richards. <laughs> like what, drink? Yeah. Mammy has Jemison in the press she uses for hot whiskies there if you want. The dwarf went and got the whiskey. He sat back up at the kitchen table, unscrewed the cap and took a great big gulp of it. His body rejected it and he vomited it all back up onto the kitchen floor. Elaine laughed. You're fucked, you are. Whatever. How old are you? How old are you? Did you get sexually abused or something? No. Why? You know you were naked, yeah? I'm aware. Mammy's gone down the street to see if she can find your clothes. I told her you weren't really wearing any. Not in the traditional meaning of the word. Well, I hope she finds it. They're expensive. The dwarf sipped rather than slugged on the whiskey. I was rude to that guy upstairs. John? with the Chelsea jersey. John loves Chelsea. Mammy came back in the back door, holding the dwarf's costume from the night before. It was a spandex skin suit with giant rubber cock sticking out from the groin. Mammy was mortified. My cock's out, the dwarf said. Elaine watched Mammy drag it in, sniggering into her tea. I told you, Mammy. Just what the hell is it? Mammy asked. Thanks, Mammy, the dwarf said and took it from her. He rummaged through a zip pocket. Fucking bingo, he said on finding his phone. Thank fuck. Who's drinking the whiskey? Elaine and the dwarf fell silent. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. I'll head off, the dwarf said. Are you drinking whiskey at 10 o'clock in the morning? Hair of the dog, you know how it is, Mammy. Yes, Mammy said. I do know how it is. I had a husband drink himself to death and I'm not your Mammy. Mammy, Elaine said. What is your mother's number actually? Mammy, Elaine said. Mammy nothing, Mammy said. I'm going to go, the dwarf said, and gathered up his cock suit. We put you up in this house, young man. 
We fed, sheltered and clothed you. We did not call the police. And in return, I want your mother's number right now. Are you fucking serious? The dwarf asked. I'm 23 years old. Yes, I am serious. And I don't care if you're 123 years old. My mother lives in Germany. They have phones in Germany the last time I checked. For fuck's sake, the dwarf said. You can F and blind all you want, mister. I want your mother's phone number now. The dwarf handed his mother's phone number over to Mammy. What's her name? <coughs> Matilda. And what's your name? Matthew. Someone said, hello, on the other end of the phone. Hello, is this Matilda? Matilda, my name is Bridget Doyle. I'm calling from Kilkenny in Ireland. I have Matthew with me. Now he's fine, but he was drunk last night here in Kilkenny and he was handcuffed to a stag. A stag. For money, I suppose. Were you, were you doing it for money? Yeah, Matthew said. Yes, Matilda, they were paying him. And having wandered out from Matt the Miller's, it's a pub down here in Kilkenny, uh, he broke into our home and ended up in my daughter's bed. We let him sleep here, Matilda. And like I said, he's fine. But I'm worried about the course of action his life is taking. He's here beside me, drinking whiskey at 10 in the morning and eyeballing me furiously. Matthew stopped eyeballing Mammy furiously. You don't have to tell me about it, Matilda. Didn't I have a husband die from it? I know. I know. Elaine looked at Matthew and Matthew looked back. It's some suit with a big Mickey sticking out of it. But he wasn't actually wearing it when we found him in the bed. No. Uh, he's nude. Completely nude. He'd taken it off out on the street, I think. Elaine looked at Matthew. You have a rash, by the way. It's the suit, Matthew said. Well, he's here if you want to talk to him. Okay, no problem, Matilda. And look, I'm sorry if you're upset, but it's just... I would like to know if it was my child wandering the streets drunk and breaking into people's homes nude. And I hope that he, see that he sees that he's loved and needed and starts to act with dignity for his own sake and for his own well-being. And that he seeks help with the drink because it's near impossible to do it alone. Like I said, I've seen a man try and fail. Mammy wound it up. This is my number if you ever want to talk, Matilda. Okay, Matilda. Goodbye now. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. Mammy put the phone down. You're to call your mother. Where is it you live? Dublin? Yeah, Matthew said. Do you have money or means to get there? I have a return train ticket. Elaine, find out when the next train goes for him, will you? They got a bag so Matthew could put his cock suit in it. Mammy didn't want him walking the streets of Kilkenny, gripping a big bendy mickey all over the place. There'd be families. And Matthew left. And life went on. The story of the naked dwarf in Elaine Doyle's bed becoming talk of the town. And Mammy was down in Tesco telling the whole queue she called his mother on him. And the queue said, fair play to you, Bridget.
and then life quietened and Mammy checked the post and looked at her phone more often and became more and more withdrawn as the days went on. And she was sad, that's what it was. John didn't notice, but Elaine did. And one evening, after dinner, Mammy stared off into space and Elaine finally said something. What's the matter with you, Mammy? Nothing, Mammy said, absolutely nothing. Come off it, Mammy, you're sad or something. It doesn't matter. Come on, Mammy, there's something wrong with you. What is it? It's just, Mammy said, ah, it doesn't matter, honestly. What? I don't know. You try, Elaine, you know? We try, you try, we all, we, we do try. Okay, we try. And? Well, you know, I never got so much as a thank you card from that woman out in Germany. The Empress by Lisa Farrell I placed his letter on my dressing table so that while I sat before the mirror I could keep my eyes on his words. I'd heard the myths before, of course, of the wayward daughter who bewitched men with a look. According to the tales, she enchanted an emperor in some fabled land at the edge of the world who made her his bride and showered her with gold. They said she was a powerful sorceress, but like any common witch, water was her downfall. She left his land in a ship laden with treasure, but lost it all to the sea. I believe she was real, he wrote. I believe her treasure awaits rediscovery. I wish to prove that she lived, your famous ancestor. Do not let superstitions deter you. I know you are an educated woman and believe in science, not curses. He was right. The curse held no fear for me. If the Empress lay at the bottom of the sea, waiting to be awoken by the first foolish treasure hunter, when had she managed to found my family? <laughs> it was nonsense. Think of it, he wrote. Help me reclaim her treasure and rescue her from obscurity. Respectfully yours, Thomas Johnson. I'd heard of him before, this Thomas Johnson. I'd read of him in the newspapers. A clever man, by all accounts. If he thought there was something to find... All done, madam, interrupted the maid, putting down my brush. She'd interrupted my thoughts, but I was too distracted to scold her. I waved her away and took the letter to my writing desk. Dear Mr Johnson, I wrote, I invite you to visit me this afternoon and discuss the details of your work. Please take this opportunity to convince me of its merits and my patronage will be yours. That afternoon, Thomas Johnson stood before me with his bag in his hands, a tall man, lean, with a pleasant face. I offered him tea and a comfortable chair. He declined the tea and sat with his bag perched on his lap, his fingers tight around the handle. 
he glanced at the paintings on my wall, scenes from my travels. You have lived quite a life, he said. Was it a comment on my age? I tried to laugh it off. <laughs> it's not over yet, I hope. I told him of my adventures, how I'd entered ancient tombs, climbed snow-capped mountains, conversed with wise sages. And now, I told him, I intend to walk on the bottom of the sea with you. That shocked him. Madam, I, I do not think... Ah, but you are a visionary, I said, stopping him there. Most men cannot see the way you do, but I can. I understand. You will risk everything for your new invention, this great discovery. Now, let me see the plans that you guard so closely. He thumbed open his bag and drew out sheets of paper covered in spidery notes and detailed sketches. A suit with a grilled mask caught my eye. Could have been an instrument of torture. He flinched as I reached a finger to touch the image, but I pretended not to notice. These tubes provide the air, I guessed, and he nodded. I asked how much time he needed to make a pair. Given sufficient means, he said, I could have everything ready in a matter of weeks. Then I will give you the means, I promised. But you will take me with you. That is a most important condition. He agreed, of course, and left to get to work. I waited patiently for those long weeks until the time came to settle on a date. I wanted to avoid Mercury in retrograde. He was more concerned about the weather. It was like planning a wedding. But I put that thought carefully aside. Thomas was a fine young man with a focus that bordered on obsession. There was no time for women in his life. We would both wear suits of leather and metal rivets adorned with spikes to deter sea monsters from eating us. Though I had paid for it, the suit he made for me seemed the most personal gift I'd ever received. He'd even allowed space for my skirts inside the leather legs. I didn't have the heart to tell him that I was quite accustomed to wearing breeches. My helmet was a beautiful thing, not nearly as frightful as in the sketch. Fashioned of polished bronze, with a barred window from which I would peer at the world he showed me. We took a boat out across the water, manned by eight fine, muscled fellows of my own staff. I felt like an empress already, sat at one end of the boat, Thomas checking the equipment at the other. I listened to the waves lapping and watched him work. Two gulls passed overhead, flying together and calling to one another, and I took it as a good sign. He put up a hand. This was the place. Our suits lay ready under sackcloth that stopped the sun from heating the metal masks. This is thrilling, I said. Are you excited? 
Of course, he said, but I'm afraid this is the first of many dives, madam. The only records we have are in the myth. We can't be sure of the wreck's location. You must not doubt yourself, I told him. You think it's here and I believe you. Others may not. I glanced back towards the land. He had invited a number of learned gentlemen to witness our dive and none had come. But soon we will prove your invention and return to the shore with ancient treasures beyond price. No one will ever doubt you then. He nodded and said nothing. We tugged the suits on over our clothes. It would be cold, he said in the deep. The heat of the sun couldn't reach us there. We would be in another world entirely. Just the two of us. Thomas went first and I followed. Our boots were weighted with lead and it was a strange sensation being dragged down through the water into the unknown. The hiss of air pumping through my mask seemed to grow louder as the light dimmed, but it was reassuring. As long as my men continued to pump, I could breathe naturally, or so Thomas had said, and I had no reason to mistrust him. It grew difficult to see, the light from above murky and distant. Occasionally something shot across my vision, too fast to identify. I kept my arms to my sides as instructed to aid the descent, and Thomas spun slowly beside me, his arms stiff by his sides. Cables trailed above him, giving him the look of a fish on a hook. I did not see the ground but felt it and stumbled slowly forward before Thomas's arm gently righted me. Our every movement was slow, deliberate, as in a dream. I gazed at the seabed, nothing but rocks and sand, grey in the gloom. Then he pointed through the murk, and I saw a jutting stone with carvings on its surface, swirls and whirls like a fingerprint. He had been right. Of course he had. Like drunken men lost at night, we plunged after the artefacts. The gleam of gold in the sand seemed an illusion, but each footstep revealed a new treasure, jewels that glinted for a moment before the sand settled over them again. Thomas detached the bag from his belt and began to fill it, using a claw-like tool he'd designed himself. Bending was impossible in the suit, but with that tool, he soon filled the bag with wonders plucked from fertile soil, ancient treasures and works of art. Then, a face in the sand, golden and shining. He gripped it with a claw and pulled, but found it embedded in some remnant of the ship. I watched him tug and strain, and then it came free with such force that it slipped from his grip and spun loose in the water among fragments of rotten wood. I reached out and caught the treasure in my gloved hands and found myself gazing into the face of the Empress herself, her beauty immortalised in a golden mask. Her features were familiar, the family resemblance clear. 
A deep shadow passed over us. Something large swimming above, but the Empress's face still shone, and I held her towards Thomas to put in his bag. She had to be the most priceless thing we'd found. Thomas did not take her, but recoiled, jerking away too quickly. His suit leaked bubbles. He was losing air. His arms flailed uselessly, so I reached for the wire above him and tugged a signal to the waiting men. His feet left the ground and he rose through the water, leaving me alone with the mask. I might have been hysterical with worry for Thomas, but the serene expression of the Empress was some comfort. I held her golden face up to my own, and her empty eyes seemed to gaze back. When my turn came and I emerged, the men lifted the helmet from me and I saw Thomas lying unconscious on the deck. He was breathing, they assured me. One of the tubes had detached from his suit in the water and he was lucky to be alive. He still clutched my sack of treasure in his hands. I took Thomas home, gave him the finest guest room and sat by his bedside while he slept. The doctors assured me he would be well, but needed time to mend. I would give him all the time in the world. I filled the room with the treasures he had collected, so that he would see evidence of his success when he woke. I dribbled water over his lips, and when his eyes opened, I was there to greet him. He shrank from me as though I were a monster hid under his blankets like a child. You need food, I said. You need your strength back, that's all. I carried it to him myself, seafood soup in a golden bowl. Food fit for an emperor, I told him. But he would not have it. Wrinkled his nose as though it smelt foul. Such rudeness. I put the spoon to his lips, but he lifted a hand and sent it clattering across the floor. Some madness took him, and he grabbed the mask of the Empress I had placed on his bedside table. He swung it round, and I fell back off my chair as the golden face came towards me, thrust with such force he could have cracked my skull with it. I caught it and clutched her visage to my chest. How could anyone fail to be enchanted by her? servants came running and I ordered them to tie him down. Such a wondrous thing we had done together, diving to the depths to reclaim the treasure of my ancestor, her gold, her jewels, her very likeness. It was mine now and I felt as though she lived on within me, free of the sea at last. When I put the mask to my face, the gold fitted like a second skin, and I tried to show Thomas to make him understand. He averted his gaze, unable to look at me, eyes wide and quickened breath like a rabbit in a snare. After that, it didn't matter whether I wore the mask or not. He quailed at my approach. I had to believe that he would recover and share the spoils. Yet he begged for release as though I were his jailer.
not his nurse. A lesser woman would have tired of him long ago and given up. But I never will. I am stronger than other women. I am an empress. Goodbye, Mr Mackenzie, by Peter Higgins. In that sad tangle of alleys north of Cortland Street, EC1, all corners and shadows, shadows and corners, that's where I am right now. I'm in a hurry. <laughs> I see an ID card that someone's dropped and I think, who cares? Not my problem. I'm in a hurry. But I pick it up anyway. Somebody's work ID card. Alistair Mackenzie, it says. Deputy Workforce Administrator at FSL. Who's Alistair Mackenzie? Who's FSL? What's a Deputy Workforce Administrator? Never mind. Look at Mr Mackenzie. Round face, brisk beard, short grey hair. How old would you say? Fifty? Perhaps? Kids? Yeah, yeah. Two, maybe three. A lovely loyal wife who, bless her, has stuck with him through thick and thin. <laughs> Brochure fresh house in Essex, Kent, Surrey. Football. Mow the lawn. Have a barbecue. Nice fat silver car. Black car, blue car. Slouching on the gravel. Everything available, everything blatant and raw, like pornography or boxing. Like I said, I'm in a hurry. I'm a busy man. So I slip the ID card in my inside pocket next to my phone and I stride off. Look at me striding. <laughs> but before I can get to Sainsbury's, I see a white plaque next to a pair of large dark doors on my left, just at the watery edges of my eyes. That's where the demons live, my mum used to say. Now go back to sleep. FSL. Just that, nothing more. Three plain, sun serif, navy blue, capital letters F and S and L. Serious lettering for a serious business. Mark my words. Beneath the plaque is a little black access control panel with one real light, blinking patiently, waiting. Perfect. All I have to do is go inside and hand it over and that's my good deed done for the day. Who decides what's a good deed? I must have walked past this place a million times before and never noticed it. London's like that. After a while you just don't see it anymore. You don't see it until it changes. Where's, where's that building gone? I wonder where she is now. I put Alistair's card up against the panel. And yes, the red light turns to green. And there's a wonderfully satisfying beep that I'd hardly dared hope for. Breathless. Weightless, I need to behave as if I belong here. I, I do belong here. After all, I've got an ID card. 
try and stop me. Well, all right, but what do I do now? When I've done that, what do I do next? Where am I supposed to go? And what if Alistair McKenzie is here in the building, even as we speak? And what if he's talking to security, reporting the loss of his ID card? And what if security are monitoring the CCTV situation and, and, and pointing at the screens and then looking at each other and back at the screens? Intruder, level zero, code red. But it doesn't happen. Nothing happens. Where do assistant workforce administrators work? Third floor? Nineteenth floor? I walk into the lift and press three. Everything on the third floor is glass and metal and nice pale wooden panels and corporate art brought by the square yard. There are plants that nobody waters but they never die. You know the sort of shit. There are people sitting at desks, someone rushing past with a laptop in his hand. Better get a move on with that, they might need it right away. And then there's a blue water cooler. Plastic, upside down. So blue. So cold. I approach an empty desk. Monitor, mouse, keyboard, telephone, pink post-it pad, some pens in a pot, too many peas, not my fault. I sit down, the chair sighs a welcoming sigh. Yes, it's me, Alistair McKenzie. <laughs> Alistair, Al, Mac, Ken, Ken, from McKenzie. No, that's not working. Stick with Al. You can call me Al. <laughs> Rise with pal. <laughs> Sounds good, I like it. The phone rings, I pick it up. Say hello, with a question mark at the end. Woman who answers addresses me as Alistair. Asks me something about a problem she's having and could I assist and I was so helpful with that thing before. <laughs> we both laugh, enjoying remembering oh yes that thing before <laughs> what was it that thing before phone down again try to look busy I shall probably log into Alistair's computer get some work done what's his password how should I know perhaps I can guess but this isn't a film where passwords are guessable in approximately eight seconds <laughs> by the quick super quick-witted superhero <laughs> who can use his fists the way he can use his brain. Perhaps Alistair McKenzie wrote it on a pink post-it note and stuck it under his desk. I crouched down to have a look. Nothing. I open a desk drawer. Some pens, a book of stamps, some keys, paper clips and a USB stick and a rubber band. I pull the drawer as far as it will go and there I see it. Not on a pink post-it note but on a yellow one. Taste of cough syrup in my mouth because we used to use a plastic spoon. Exactly that same colour yellow 40 years ago. I type in the password and hold my breath, please be right. <laughs> and I'm in. 
I open my emails, not my emails, Al's emails. I read a few standard stuff, meetings, appointments, targets. I send an email to myself and shiver when my phone shivers in my pocket. While pretending to be busy, I glance around at my colleagues at the open plan office, at the windows letting in the dark light, <laughs> at the notice board all the monitors and printers and cupboards and signs on the doors and on the walls. Everyone looks just as busy as me. Are all these people actually who they say they are? How can I be sure? How can they be sure? I write a few emails, open a few spreadsheets, answer a few calls. Christ, is that the time? Some of my colleagues are already packing up, squeezing into coats, packing backpacks. Colleagues, well, <laughs> I can't call them friends. Not yet. I get up, walk to the lift, go down, ground floor, out of the building. At the station, I look up at the notice board like someone in a Spielberg movie. Awesome. All the destinations and the times and the platforms and the delays. Where does Alistair Mackenzie live? I squeeze onto the train, stand next to them all, all the others, look at them. The women in their short skirts and black tights. The men in their grey jackets and their grey trousers. Everyone with headphones and phones, shoes and bags and newspapers, Instagram, Twitter, WhatsApp. And the next stop is, the next stop is, the next stop. <laughs> Bright in the train, very dark outside. Just white lights and orange lights and houses backing onto railway lines, some of them you can see into the tiny kitchen and the living room. For a moment, as the train rattles past, whose lives are these? Yours? Mine? I get off at a station I've never heard of. I walk along, down a road, and another road, another road, another. The next house is mine, the next house, the next house. Hedges, wheelie bins, trees, lights, lights behind trees, road, avenue, crescent, the kind of place you'd expect to see in a film. And then just as I, just as I have thought, a slim fox trots across my path a hundred yards ahead, disappears again. It was definitely there though, I saw it with my own eyes. You have to believe me. Quiet, dead-end street. Nice houses all in a row. Not old houses, really. Just pretending to be old. The windows of Mr Mackenzie's house. Downstairs and upstairs. They're all ablaze with lights. Expectant. Hopeful. I walk past the car, which is exactly as I knew it would be and knock on the door, which is exactly as I knew it would be. 
brief burst of panic, weakness. That's all, fight it. Fight it. Indistinct voices behind the door, the family getting ready to welcome me in. In from the cold, moonless night time. I take one last look around at the bright dark street and the entire glimmering world on standby awaiting further instructions Hebris by Jonathan Sellers There once was an army led by the Russian Tsar himself that set out for the bleak wastelands which formed the most northerly part of the Tsar's vast kingdom. Though he'd been told many times that these lands were nothing but snow and ice and they led to nothing but endless sea, the Tsar could not resist their call. As a child, his father had explained to him how those wastelands were to be feared always feared, not because they harboured enemies who might at some point emerge from them. No one ever emerged from them. But feared for the power that the lands themselves possessed. His father would tell him how they were cursed and cruel, that they cared nothing for the empires of Tsars or those of their enemies, and how they wished only to be left alone. And the part that resonated most with the Tsar they answered to only one person, Hebris, the witch. Always remember this, my son, his father would say to the boy sat on his knee playing with the plaits in his beard. There are some forces on this earth which are outside our control. Like I have and my ancestors before me, you must learn to live alongside them and trust that if you do not disturb them, they will not disturb you. Those wastelands may fall inside our kingdom, but we shall never rule them. The Tsar, however, was a restless and paranoid man. He could not sleep at night knowing that some part of his kingdom sat open and defenceless. With each passing year, his father's words resonated less and less, while the thought that his enemies plotted and schemed within his borders grew like a tumour. Finally, he could take no more. He gathered his generals. I will not be the fool who sat still, simply trusting the stories a father tells his son. I must see these wastelands for myself and know for sure that no enemy of mine sits within. But your highness, his generals protested, it is just frozen meadows covered in nothing but snow and ice. Some say it is not even that and it is just the sea that sits frozen, waiting for a thaw that will never come. It is uninhabitable. The only enemy there is the land itself. It is too harsh even for horses. We would have to move only on foot. Please, your excellency, leave your armies to worry about the enemies they know. The Tsar, however, would not listen. The wastelands were bitterly cold. For a week, the Tsar snaked his army across the barren landscape, finding nothing each day but 
deeper and deeper snowdrifts. Then one day, with food supplies dwindling and, and frostbite sweeping through the men like a virus, the endless white wall of the horizon was broken by a ladder of smoke rising up from a wooden cottage. As the Tsar drew closer, he could see a young woman stood outside on the doorstep. Like any peasant, she wore a simple pinafore dress, with a red headscarf concealing all but a few wisps of her soft brown hair. She radiated a youthful excitement as she held a shawl around her shoulders and looked out onto the mass of approaching men. The Tsar instructed his army to halt as he went forward alone. I was beginning to think my father was right, and, and these really were just deserted wastelands, said the Tsar, admiring the cottage and its thick timber frame. Oh no, smiled the woman, her face kind and warming, but our visitors are few. Most people, it seems, choose to believe the stories they are told. Why, yes, uh, said the Tsar, glancing over at his generals. He ran his hand along the smooth wooden beams from which the cabin was made. We've walked for days and, and seen not even a shrub poking from the surface, yet your cottage is made from such fine wood. The woman smiled again, as if taking the compliment personally. Would you believe that all the wood that makes this cottage, from the foundations it sits upon to the beams that form its roof, came from just one tree? That is not possible, laughed the Tsar, shaking his head. Trees that size do not exist. Not in my kingdom. Well, see for yourself. Not far from here, she gestured into the featureless distance. You will find a small woodland. The wood burns well, and it will be a good place to camp, perhaps. She paused for a moment and pulled her shawl tight around her. And remember to build your fires high. I feel tonight will be as cold as you have ever known. I will, said the Tsar, turning to look at the columns of soldiers, each man's face straining to hide the cold they felt. As he began to walk back to his position alongside his generals, the young woman shouted out, Is there anything else you require from me? Your Highness? The Tsar stopped, his face betraying his satisfaction at the recognition. He thought for a moment, then turned towards her. He stared into her gentle eyes. All I ask is that you remember, these lands are mine and all that live here will bow to me. Of course, she replied, and with that she stepped back into the warmth of her cottage and closed the door. You see, smiled the Tsar as he returned to his generals, there is more to this wasteland than you thought. By the time the army had reached the woodland, night was fast approaching. The cold was relentless, and the Tsar had allowed the men to run the last mile to bring themselves some warmth. While the generals made preparations for the camp, the Tsar studied the trees that were quickly being turned into firewood. That young woman must be mistaken, he frowned to himself, taking an amber leaf from a low branch and placing it in his jacket pocket. One of these would certainly build a cattle shed, but not a whole cottage. 
Perhaps I shall inquire with her in the morning if this is truly where she meant. Such was the size of the Tsar's armies, and such was their relief at finally finding an antidote to the ceaseless chill. No tree was left unfelled. All that remained of the woodland was a hundred headless stumps sticking out of the frozen ground like vacant plinths. In between these, huge bonfires were erected, rising up towards the clear night sky, each encircled by masses of weary soldiers, all eager to feel the warmth of flames upon their face. After a week of frozen huddles, waiting for the dawn to bring some kind of reprieve, the men at last welcomed the night and the warm rest it brought with it. The Tsar sat with his generals, admiring the approval of his men. There were so many fires spread across the camp that he couldn't help but feel that he and his army sat within one giant flame that raged around them, a force field against the cold. He unwound the thick scarf that had become almost part of him over the last week and even found himself loosening his stiff winter jacket. He stretched his hands out towards the fire to warm them, immediately recoiling at the heat. I've never seen wood burn so bright and so fiercely. Even the ground itself is warm by it. I will be wearing nothing but my undershirt if this heat continues, he laughed, looking to his generals for a reaction. There was none. Well, he carried on, I'm starting to take a liking to this place. Not only does it hold no enemies, but I can sense that it is home to many treasures. Treasures that are mine. The Tsar smiled to himself as he took the amber leaf from his pocket and played with it in his fingers. And to think, all this time, I lived in fear of an old man's stories. With that, he returned the leaf to his pocket and bid the generals good night. The soldiers soon fell into a deep sleep, intoxicated by the sweet smell of the fire and the warmth that melted the frost entwined in their bones. The only sounds that resonated were the deep snores of the men and the crackle of the wood that continued to burn fiercely across the camp. So deep was the sleep that no one so much as stirred as a third noise joined the night chorus. At first the cracks in the frozen ground were nothing but small fractures, indistinguishable from shadows. However, before long these had rippled across the camp, becoming great chasms. The once solid ground, now so fragile and precarious, began to disintegrate, revealing nothing but a bottomless sea below it. The men, so engrossed in their slumber, slipped silently into the freezing water, dragged to its icy depths without a cry. The Tsar had not been able to find sleep as easily as his men. As he felt the ground beneath him rupture and begin to disappear, he looked around in panic for some kind of rescue or escape. He searched frantically for a tree stump to clamber onto, but found himself thrust into the icy water before one could be reached. His breath was taken from him, but he fought against the current dragging him down, battling his way through the water until he felt rough bark against his trembling fingers. 
He searched for the bottom of the stump with his foot, waiting to feel the security of the ground on which he could push himself up. But there was none. The trunk just carried on down into the infinitely icy depths. The severed tree as tall as the bottomless sea. At last the Tsar pulled himself up and climbed to his feet. He fought the blinding cold, shivering incessantly as he looked out into the clear moonlight, making out the far edge of what had so recently been his army's camp. All that had once been frozen solid, packed with sleeping men and raging bonfires, was now water, lapping calmly against the many trees that sat within. The Tsar watched as the last remnants of his army sank into the depths alongside the drowning embers. And now their light had fully extinguished. His eyes were drawn back to the land, frozen once more, where a hooded figure now stood. The Tsar knew immediately who the figure was and knew better than to cry to it for help. He stared, shivering on his tree aisle, as his father lifted off his cloak. The Tsar could feel his disappointment burning through him as the words he'd heard so often as a child echoed in his memory one last time. And as his father disappeared into the cold night air, the Tsar bowed his head, allowing it to fall into his ice-blue hands. It wasn't until the next morning that the young woman appeared. She walked slowly through the woodland, the ground once again solid underfoot the trees standing as tall as they ever had. She stopped as she came across a tree which had not grown back, continuing to remain just a stump. Upon it sat the frozen figure of a man. The woman smiled tenderly as she stroked the top of his bowed head, pausing as she noticed an amber leaf protruding from his jacket pocket. She inspected the leaf for a moment before taking it in her hand and placing it in her own. And then she turned and walked out into the bleak white of the wastelands once more.